0: This is Transforming Culture, an MBC Podcast. 5th episode of Transforming Culture, Season 2. It's been an encouragement to have so many of you listening to the podcast and spending time considering these weighty issues. I'm excited to have another friend from the United States with us this week. Juan Sanchez is from Austin, Texas, and definitely brought some amazing Southern flavor with him during the summer when he was with us in Week 5 at NBC. He and his wife, Janine, were really great as they enjoyed the beautiful summer weather here, even if they did remind us frequently that it wasn't quite as hot as Texas, Juan has served as senior pastor of High Point Baptist Church since August 2005. He's a graduate of the University of Florida and holds an MDiv, a THM, and a PhD in systematic theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In addition, Juan serves as a council member of the Gospel Coalition, co-founder and president of Coalition, and associate professor of theology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has authored numerous books, including First Peter for You and Seven Dangers Facing Your Church. His most recent book is The Leadership Formula, Develop the Next Generations of Leaders in the Church. Juan has been married to Janine since 1990, and they have five adult daughters. As you'll hear during his session, Juan has his own experiences with immigration in the church. And I'm so glad we had someone as knowledgeable and well-spoken as him dealing with what is becoming an increasingly difficult issue in our communities. Give his session a listen now.
1: So why immigration? Um, when Luke and I were, were talking, uh, we just threw out some subjects, and, and when, when I first mentioned some of the things that we have done in our church, uh, just to give you context, Austin, Texas, you know, state of Texas is a border state with a southern border, and we do have a lot of immigration coming in, and um, we do have also some undocumented uh, immigrants that are in and around the city and around the state. And uh, this is an issue that we have had to deal with at multiple levels, um, both uh, refugees. Um, we we were fortunate to have as a member for some time, one of the first identified Emirati Christians in the world. Uh, Emiratis are an unreached people group. The United Arab Emirates is full of Emiratis. But if you go to the UAE, it's only about 10% Emiratis. And 90% of the people that live in the UAE are actually uh, expats, people from other countries working there uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it is illegal to uh, to evangelize Emiratis. And uh, we got to meet uh, one of the first identifiable Emirati Christians who became a member of our church. The, the way that he came into the United States was uh, he came to study, came on a student visa, and as he came uh, to his studies, uh, Americans shared the gospel with him, and he came to faith in Christ. Being a person of integrity, uh, he informed his government authorities of his conversion because he wanted to be above reproach, and the government was paying for all his studies here in the United States, And when he informed his governing authorities of his conversion, uh, they cut him off. And he basically could not return to the United Arab Emirates. And of course there was a concern about his family possibly uh, wanting him to do harm. Um, The only way that he could stay in the United States was to uh, apply for refugee status, and he was granted that refugee status. the chairman of our elders at our church is, is from India, and he and his wife came from India to the United States to work for IBM. And um, they paid for his immigration process, but uh, his wife, uh, they did not. She had to go through the immigration process, and it was a costly process. And when we first arrived at, uh, at Austin in High Point Baptist Church, one of the great joys for us, that was the first. Citizenship ceremony that we had, we were ever a part of, was uh, her her ceremony of becoming a U.S. citizen, and it really was a, a very powerful, powerful image. Why do I share all these stories with you? Well, it's because I can only speak from the United States context. I was born in Puerto Rico, and being born in Puerto Rico is a little bit unique because. Uh, It is a U.S. territory, and being a U.S. territory, I am Hispanic, but I am born as a naturalized citizen of the United States, and so I did not have to go through the same immigration process to come to the United States. Uh, My dad, in 1973, was in politics in Puerto Rico. It got very, uh, very uh, uh, ugly and dangerous, and to get us out of that context, he moved us to Florida, and uh, because we were basically naturalized U.S. citizens, there was nothing we had to do except I had to experience everything that a lot of immigrants experience in learning English, going to school, going to public school, um, just really trying to fit into this culture and trying to understand what that was like. Uh, I remember as a kid just longing to be accepted into this new culture that I was in. I was about eight years old. And so what I did is I began to choose all the teams of the sports that were winning. And I know that probably American sports doesn't mean a lot to you, but uh, in American football, I became a Dallas Cowboy football fan because they were winning. And in baseball, I became a Cincinnati Reds baseball fan because they were winning. That was the days of the Big Red Machine. Johnny Bench was the catcher. Pete Rose was still playing baseball not in jail. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, the, the NBA, I became a Boston Celtics fan because they were winning. It was the, the days of Larry Bird. And, um, and then I was just, just longing to find some kind of identity. And I remember watching a, a, a television show and I saw a Puerto Rican there on TV. And um, the show was Chips, California Highway Patrol, and uh, the actor was Eric Estrada, and he parted his hair down the middle. So I wanted to part my hair down the middle uh, just to be accepted and to to be like him because he seemed to be accepted in this culture. And um, and then because I was a Dallas Cowboys fan, I was watching this television show this one time, and they showed a helicopter view of the Dallas Cowboys football stadium at that time in Irving, Texas, that had an open section in the middle. And uh, and so I was intrigued with that show, and, and I began watching that show. It was Dallas, and um, <coughs> there was this character on Dallas named JR. and so my name is Juan Ramon Sanchez de Jesus. And I thought, well, maybe if I changed my name, I could fit into this culture. So rather than going by Juan Ramon, I went by JR. And um, I say all that to say, give you a little perspective from the eyes of a child that has come into a place where I didn't know the language, I didn't know the culture, but I was desperate to be accepted by the culture. And uh, in God's mercy and grace, one of the things that he showed me is um, that everything that I was longing for to be accepted really was found in Christ at 17 years of age um, through the love of young people at a church who accepted me. You know, I was, I grew up in the Catholic background and what was fascinating to me is I didn't have the Christian lingo. You know, I was, I was young, I was the first, I was the oldest of four, I was a horrible kid. And um, you know, they talked about having a quiet time. I could not imagine why anyone would want to be quiet for any time at all. And, um, but but these young people loved me and they showed me the love of Christ. And that's what drew me and I realized that acceptance I was longing for really really was found in Jesus Christ. Um, in the United States, uh, Again, I can only speak about our context. Uh, politicians tend to speak in sound bites, And they they tend to m- uh, reduce things uh, overly and, and overly simplify things. And one of the things that I've discovered in my life is that things are not as black and white as we think they are. They're not as simple as we think they are. Let me give you a different example. When my wife and I went to Israel a number of years ago, Uh, We had no concept for the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. We were there in a special trip led by the Philos Project, which is there to educate uh, religious leaders. And um, we met with sociologists, uh, uh, Jewish sociologists, to help us understand the the Jewish population. We met with uh, a Palestinian pollster, a Palestinian journalist, uh, we met with people that lived in a village right from Gaza, where from Gaza they would they would send in uh, missiles over to to their little Jewish uh, Jewish community. And one of the things we realized it is just that whole situation is very complex, and and we don't really understand what what politicians tell us. They tell us in sound bites and tend to kind of reduce everything. I think the immigration issues is the same thing. Um, it is a very complex issue in the United States. I don't know a lot about here in Canada. On Friday night, I met with some church planters from the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. We met in Toronto, They're at NAM headquarters in Toronto for Canada, and they were all Hispanic church planting pastors. And I just sat, and I just wanted to learn from them. You know, what is their ministry like? How are they? How are they reaching? Uh, Hispanic immigrants into this, into this, into this nation. And um, do, are they dealing with undocumented uh, immigration and those kinds of things? And it was really fascinating. One of the things that I learned is that the immigration issues here are very different than the immigration issues in the United States. So, what I want to do this evening is I wanna help us think through the topic of immigration. With principles, this is one of the things that I have learned that is most helpful to do, rather than state a position and argue it, argue for it from, argue it for, argue for it from the Bible. What I want to do is I want us to approach this subject from principles from Scripture that we can all agree on, and then help us understand. Look, I think this is how we need to work through issues. Um, uh, one resource I would recommend is a book by Robert Benny, B-E-N-N-E. Robert Benny, he's a Lutheran uh, scholar. I don't know if he's a theologian. But Robert Benny, the title of his book is Good and Bad Ways of Thinking About Religion and Politics. Good and Bad Ways of Thinking About Religion and Politics. It's a really very helpful book. And and I hope to, to model the principle that he proposes in there. And it's simply this. Uh, As Christians, we look to Scripture and we need to understand that we can't argue for a position directly from passages of Scripture on everything, right? Scripture is sufficient, but Scripture doesn't tell us how to do brain surgery. Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness, for everything that we need, for salvation. But we also need to understand that we need to uh, we need to be able to know how to go to Scripture and formulate positions based upon biblical principles, and we cannot always draw a direct line from a passage of Scripture to a position. So what he talks about is straight line issues. Those are issues where we can go to a passage of Scripture and draw a straight line to a position, and then jagged line issues. That's, those are issues that we can't draw a straight line from a passage of Scripture or verse of Scripture to a position, but we can start with a passage of Scripture, go to another passage of Scripture, go to another passage of Scripture, then go to another passage of Scripture, and and, and, and eventually, slowly, taking in the biblical data, we can form a biblical position. Let me introduce one more category And that is a category that we use at our church to distinguish levels of doctrine. Um, At the core, we are what we call gospel Christians. So imagine a target with a bullseye. And the bullseye is the core. At our core, we are gospel Christians. That means that we believe those doctrines that make us gospel Christians. If you were to remove one of those doctrines, we are no longer Christian. So core beliefs are those beliefs that make us gospel Christians, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Those core doctrines, the first order doctrines, are doctrines that we would die for. Those are doctrines that we would not negate. Outside of that, the next concentric circle are what we call characteristic beliefs, So the core beliefs, the core doctrines of the Christian faith, characteristic beliefs, those are the beliefs that characterize our fellowship of believers, High Point Baptist Church. So we are characterized by uh, believers' baptism by immersion. We're a Baptist church. And so that distinguishes us from, say, gospel Presbyterians or gospel Anglicans. You know, at our core, we are Christians here but we all probably come from different denominations and different uh, different church traditions. So we can fellowship over Christ, but when we gather together in churches, we gather based upon those characteristic beliefs. We are Baptists in the Reformation tradition. Uh, We believe in congregational government, plural elder leadership. Those are things that characterize us. But outside of that, There are what we call third-order doctrines or uh, charity beliefs. Those are the beliefs where Christians can agree to disagree and still fellowship with one another. This is an important category, not because it's the most important doctrines, but because I find this is where Christians kind of get in trouble with one another. This is where Christians kind of tend to fight over one another. Millennial views, tribulational views right those kinds of things uh, education um the christian use of alcohol um you know those kinds of things and so what we want to do is we want to distinguish first order doctrines the core beliefs of the christian faith we don't deny those characteristic beliefs those are the beliefs by which we gather as a fellowship of believers and then charity beliefs those are the beliefs where christians have freedom to disagree like Paul telling the Christians in Corinth they can disagree about meat being offered to idols. Or Paul writing to the Romans in Romans 14, you know, a church composed of Jews and Gentiles. One holds one day above the rest. The Jews held the Sabbath above the rest, but the Gentiles hold every day the same. And I think what we need to do as Christians is we, learn, we need to learn once again what are the doctrines that we cannot have any negotiation over what are the doctrines where, okay, this is our tribe, this is our fellowship of believers, this is our church, but, you know, those, the, that other tribe or that other church across the street, they're still going to heaven too. And then the charity believes, look, as believers in Christ, you can have that position and I'll still love you, I'll be charitable towards you, I won't judge you, but I have this position and I don't want you to judge me either. Does that make sense? So those two two principles of distinguishing uh, first, second, and third order doctrines, what Dr. Albert Moeller calls theological triage, identifying which doctrines we're talking about. Um, And I think that will help us move a long way, as well as straight line issues and jagged line issues. Thoughts? Questions? Make sense? All right, let's dive in. So when we think about immigration, I have four principles that I want to share with you that I hope will help us think through this. And I don't think any of these are controversial. Principle number one, how how do we think about immigration, the gospel and the church, understanding we're in different contexts? Number one, we're all created as God's image. We're all created as God's image. Again, I don't think anyone can, can deny that. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. theologians debate what it means to be created as God's image. What we can debate is that we are all image of God, every single one of us. One of the things that we have to retain if we're going to retain the gospel is a real historical Adam and Eve. If we lose a historical Adam and Eve, we actually lose the gospel because Adam and Eve, as our representative human head, represented all of us so that when he sinned, Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 21, we sin with him. And the reason that's important is because salvation works in the same way. Jesus is our representative head, and so we are justified because in the same way that sin was accounted to us because of Adam's sin, in the same way righteousness is accounted to us because of Jesus' obedience. This is what Paul explains in Romans 5, 12 through 21. So all humanity comes from Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were created as image of God to represent God's rule, God's kingdom on this earth. And we were all created to do that. Um, I could talk about this for hours, but let me just summarize it in this way. This is the language of royal priesthood that we read in scripture. That's what it means to be image of God in part. We were created to be kings and queens under God's rule to represent his government here on this earth. Adam failed. Jesus came, and he is the true image of the invisible God. He is the human son who truly represents God and truly represents his rule here on the earth. And so God has submitted everything to him, uh, everything under him. And so we are a people who were to image God, to image God's character, to image God's holiness, And so based upon this doctrine of image of God, this means every life is sacred. Again, I don't know what what the politics of abortion here is in Canada, but what we understand is that this doctrine is the basis for the sanctity of human life. So for example, look with me at Genesis 9-6. I'll show you a straight line issue. Okay? This is right. God has brought Noah and his family through the flood. In verse 5, and it says, And as for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So in other words... Human life is sacred because human life is image of God. So if someone takes the life of another human being, that's image of God, they forfeit their own life. This is the basis for capital punishment. This is the basis for the sanctity of human life. This is a basis for if you take a life, then you forfeit your life. And so this is a straight line issue from thou shalt not kill. Why? Because we're image of God. That's a straight line issue. Now, how that is worked out, for example, I'll give you an example in in the issue of abortion. It is wrong to kill another human being. Now, how we respond as Christians to that, there's not a straight line. The straight line is, it is wrong to kill. It is wrong to take human life. How we engage the culture in doing that It can be a variety of ways. It could be prayer. It could be preaching on Sanctity of Life Sunday. It could be organizing a march to the Capitol. I'm talking about things that are done in the United States. It could be running for office. The Bible doesn't tell us how to stand up for that specifically. There are a variety of ways that we can do that. What we do know is that it is wrong to take human life because every human being is image of God. Now, look with me at James chapter 3, verse 6. James is talking about the tongue. And notice what he says in verse 6 of James 3. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. From the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Do you hear what James did? Do you notice how he applied Genesis 1, 26 through 28? Because every human being is image of God, we need to watch our tongue. You know that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That is really not true, is it? You know from personal experience, words pierce, words hurt. Moms and dads, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of your words at home. The context of our home should be a place of peace, should be a place of affirmation, should be a place of encouragement. Often Janine and I would ask our children to great fear at the dinner table, Hey, kids, when it comes to you, are mom and dad mostly encouraging or mostly critical? Are we? Do you feel like we're your cheerleaders or your critics? <laughs> so we just kind of hold back and hear what they would say. But it is an important test, isn't it? Our words do matter. And the, the point that I want to make here is just simply this. Every single human being is created as God's image. And so this is why we uphold the sanctity of human life. This is why we even have to be careful how we talk to one another. So shouldn't that have some impact as to how we think about immigration and the gospel and the church? So again, my aim is not to give you a position, but to give you four principles that will hopefully help provide a framework for you to think through these things on your own. So think about implications of being created as God's image for thinking through this issue. And really, you can use this for thinking about other issues like abortion um, and and so on and so forth. Principle number two, and we'll move more quickly so you can have uh, some time for questions. Principle number two, we're to submit to governing authorities. We're to submit to governing authorities. And again, people have different opinions as to what this means, we find this in First Peter 2, but it's clear from Scripture that we're to submit to governing authorities. First uh, Peter 2, 13 through 17. Romans 13: 1 through 10. Again, those are clear. We don't disagree on that. I, I do want to point us to Acts 22. Acts 22 verses 25 through 29. This is Paul and he's in trouble again, and he's being persecuted. And he is making his case, he is saying what has happened, spoken to the people, and then he comes to the Roman Tribune, and in verse 22 it says, up to this word they listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the Tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this but when they had stretched him out for their whips uh, for the whips paul said to the centurion who was standing by is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a roman citizen and uncondemned when the centurion heard this he went to the tribune and said to him what are you about to do for this man is a roman citizen so the tribune came and said to him tell me are you a roman citizen and he said yes the tribune answered I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now, do you think Luke wants to make sure we understand Paul was a Roman citizen? (laughs) I'm going to say in just a moment that we're, we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but we're also citizens of earthly kingdoms. And here, in this circumstance, Paul demanded his rights as a Roman citizen for legal protection under Roman law. And so Paul himself understood Roman law. He understood what the law was. And being a lawful state, again, not a perfect state, not a great state, persecuted Christians, so on and so forth, but it was an ordered state. Uh, my friend Mark Dever says almost any government is better than no government. Otherwise, you have anarchy or chaos. And so, what we see is that God in First Peter two, Romans thirteen, God has given government as a deacon. That's the word that's used. The word that we translate deacon in our English language—that's a word that is that's used of government, a servant. God has placed government as a servant to punish evil and to promote the good. And in this case, Paul used that government in order to defend himself from what he was about, the punishment that he was about to receive. Now, the reason I say that is because we do have to submit to governing authorities. I don't know the laws of Canada, uh, the laws in, in relation to immigration specifically, But I can tell you in the United States that this is hard to do. And the reason this is hard to do is because we have conflicting laws. At one level, the government says, keep out if you're not documented. But at another level, the government says, here is a government-issued tax number so you can pay taxes while you work here. So what people don't realize is that there are the large percentage of undocumented uh, persons in the United States, it's a high percentage, I don't know exactly, they're actually paying their taxes, and they're actually trying to live as legally as they can under the law, but the law is sending conflicting messages. But, But ultimately, we have to obey the law. So if a student is no longer a student, they're from another country, and their student visa runs out, according to the law, they have a responsibility to communicate that and to return to their country of origin. That's what the law says. A lot of uh, undocumented uh, persons in the United States are those whose student visas have run out. Again, I don't know percentages, but, um, and then there are a number of people who come uh, fleeing difficult circumstances. Uh, so on and so forth. But again, we have to obey the law. But let me ask you this. Do you obey the Canadian government on everything? Are you supposed to obey at every point? I mean, even Paul understood this, didn't he? I mean, you remember the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's a very helpful paradigm because they were submissive to their governing authorities. Not only were they submissive to their governing authorities, they actually served. They rose up in the ranks and became royal officials. But even then, even they knew and understood that when the government commands them to do something that is contrary to the law of God, they must obey God rather than men, right? So even the submission to governing authorities has its limits, just like uh, we would say in a husband-wife relationship, in a complementary marital relationship, the Bible is clear. The wife is to submit to her husband. But if her husband calls her to do something that is contrary to the law of God, she is free to obey God rather than Him. Does that make sense? Again, what I'm trying to say is things are not as black and white as we think they are. I'll give you one example. One of the ways that we've worked through this in our church is to ask what we think is a very helpful question, and that is, what does repentance look like in this situation? So for example, we have someone coming through the membership process, and we learn that they're not here uh, documented. Uh, We begin to help shepherd them and walk them through the situation. And one of the things that we want to ask is, okay, do you understand what laws you have broken? What does repentance look like? Repentance means making things right. So what do you have to do to make things right? We had a young couple that had come from Venezuela, fleeing the situation in Venezuela, and they weren't here with the proper documentation. Their um, their uh, tourist visa had run out. They were coming through the membership process, and we just tried to shepherd them and guide them and help them to make things right. And so we provided guidance and direction as to how to apply through the appropriate channels in order to receive the appropriate documentation so that they would not be uh, trying to hide in, in our country or, or be burdened by wondering what's going to happen or, or, or working you know uh, without a permit and those kinds of things. And what, we, what we've learned is that those things take time. And at least in the United States, the immigration process is actually quite expensive and uh, thousands of dollars expensive. And the reason we know is because we ourselves as a church have guided two individual persons through that process so that they would be able to work with us on our staff. And it is an expensive process where we had to hire attorneys. But what we found is when it comes to submitting to governing authorities, we want to identify what laws have been broken and what is required to make it right. And we want to help people make that right as best as they can. We also want to understand when it's permissible to disobey governing authorities. So, for example, we had one woman who had four boys, and all four of her boys were born in the United States. I don't even know if they, if they knew Spanish. They definitely didn't know anything about Mexico from where she was from. But in her situation, she was not here uh, with the proper documentation. And so what would be the right thing to do there? It's a very complicated situation, isn't it? I mean, she could technically go back, leave her boys perhaps with family members, or she could go back and take her four boys that knew nothing of Mexico or the language. What's the right thing to do there? Again, It's just very complicated, isn't it? What we do know is that we're to submit to governing authorities. So, um, principle number three. As Christians, we are citizens of of heaven and therefore strangers and aliens on this earth. This is just a reality. This place is not our home. This earth is not our home. We are strangers and aliens. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 helps us to see this. Acts 7, 1 through 7 speaks of Abraham as walking through as a stranger. Ephesians 2, 19, Paul talks about Gentiles being uh, uh, aliens uh, outside the covenant, outside the family. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 speaks of Gentiles, formerly not God's people, now becoming God's people. And it speaks of, in 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2, it speaks about us as being strangers and aliens. Peter begins his letter to the elect exiles. In other words, those who are passing through this earth. And then Philippians 3, Paul talks about our heavenly citizenship. So this is part of the tension. Principle two, we are earthly citizens. We're to submit to governing authorities. That's part of our Christian testimony. Part of our Christian testimony is to be good and godly citizens, to obey our governing authorities that is promoting good and punishing evil. But also, principle number three, is we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom and this earth is not our home. We are strangers and aliens on this earth. So again, this is a a third principle. And then finally, principle number four, As a holy nation and a royal priesthood, this is 1 Peter 2, 9 language, this is image of God language, as a holy nation and royal priesthood, we are called both to display God's kingdom on this earth and to declare the message of the kingdom to all peoples without discrimination. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Peter is saying is that we're, we're the people of the new Exodus. We're the people that God has rescued and set apart. We're his treasured possession. That's what he said of Israel in Exodus 19. And we're to display... Just like Adam and Eve were to display God's kingdom on this earth, we are to display God's kingdom on this earth. Think of the church as an embassy. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We're an embassy of heaven. On Sunday, uh, John Friesen read from Hebrews 12. It's a, a beautiful passage beginning in verse 18. And sometimes we don't realize, but But the true church is in heaven, and every local church is a manifestation of that heavenly assembly. Read Hebrews 2, 18 through through and following. He says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the assembly, that's the word church, the church of the firstborn from the dead. Jesus Christ is our head, and every local church is an outpost or a manifestation of that heavenly assembly. A, 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 an embassy is the sovereign soil of a foreign nation in another nation. So when, when I go to Cuba, if, if something were to happen to my passport or I were to get in trouble, I go to the U.S. Embassy Because the U.S. Embassy represents the government of the United States. It represents the mission of the United States on the island nation of Cuba. And they have the authority to identify that I'm a U.S. citizen, to confirm. They don't grant me citizenship status, but they can confirm that I'm a U.S. citizen based upon their records. The church is an embassy of heaven here on earth. We are the sovereign soil of our king and his kingdom here on earth. And so we're to display the kingdom ethic. We're to display the love of Christ as we love one another, as we care for one another, as we fulfill all the one another passages. And not only are we to display God's kingdom here on this earth, we're to proclaim to all people everywhere, repent and believe in King Jesus because he's coming again. And he's going to establish his rule over all things. And you must repent and believe in him for eternal life. And so we have this mission to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, call all people everywhere to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our mission. God has saved us for this twofold mission, to declare the gospel and to display the gospel and to display the kingdom of heaven. So as a temple of God, The church is an embassy of God's kingdom on this earth, and we are ambassadors. So we must be faithfully declaring the gospel to all people everywhere. That's why we send missionaries to foreign nations, but also as people are coming here, we want to make sure that we're preaching the gospel to them as well. We want to make sure that they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. And we need to display the love of Christ and the care of the church Uh, to those that we come in contact so with these four principles i would say you might want to add more you might think of more but with these four principles i think we can begin to answer questions that we might have about immigration the gospel and the church so that was juan sanchez
0: talking about immigration and the church Juan is a great speaker and was so good to talk to you during the summer when we had our Q&A session. Unfortunately, the audio quality was not what we wanted for the podcast, so we chose to ask him to record with us a second time so that we could make sure you heard him loud and clear. Juan was very gracious, and it does seem like once a season we're good for an audio file that has some kind of really big issue with it. Juan, thank you for being willing to be that one guy this year. Let's turn now to our Q&A with Juan Sanchez recorded last week over the internet. Juan, thank you so much uh, for being here and for recording with us tonight. Uh, I will have already said this in the transition between your talk from this summer and now, but uh, the audience knows and you know that something happened with the audio and it just wasn't it wasn't to the standard that we wanted for transforming culture. And so uh, we are re-recording this in October and uh, we've already laughed a little bit about how we're hoping that we remember all the great answers and the great questions that came up. Uh, but here we are again, uh, and we're going to record and and do a little podcast Q&A uh, to talk about what you talked about in the summer. And So first of all, just a big thank you uh, for being willing to come back. I know you've been traveling a lot lately, uh, and so squeezing us in like this, I just feel really grateful. So thank you.
1: Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. It was fun doing this the first time, I'm sure it'll be fun doing it again.
0: Here's, here's hoping we can have you back for a third time about a different topic not the same <laughs> yeah, immigration yeah. topic uh, let's let's just dive right in you know one of the things that really came over me in the summer and, and I'm going back to some of my notes here you know a few months later is that when it comes to immigration there's a lot of issues there's a lot of people who want to deal in black and white they're not really wanting to deal with gray and I know from a person who's worked in the refugee system uh, in Canada at least uh, in Toronto I was a a volunteer and then a staff member at a place called Matthew House that welcomes anyone in Jesus name uh, does they don't have to be Christian, you know, people like that uh, tend to, you know, it's very gray, and it's not clear mm-hmm. if someone who's a refugee or immigrant, you know, we everyone has a story is maybe what I'm trying to say. Um, and yet we're Christians who serve and follow a perfect, holy, just God. Uh, and God knows exactly the story behind each person what's true and what's not true and embellishment and all these things you know when it comes to the issue of immigration i think sometimes there's this tension that we want black and white because it's easy Mm -hmm. to understand but the world is gray and how do we reconcile that with a holy god who uh is perfect you know we're not going to get it right all of the time what do we do with that
1: sure yeah no i mean i think that's, that's an excellent question so as believers uh who um believe that god is exists and that he has made himself known and he has ultimately revealed himself in his son and this revelation that god has given us about his son has been inscripted for us and so we have a bible that's authoritative as christians we always want to go to the bible first and we want to understand how does scripture guide us into uh this area of life you know so scripture should be our, our foundation. It's it's uh, the gospel is a foundation upon which Jesus is building his church. And so we always want to be scripture driven. We want to make sure we're scripture informed. And one of the ways I like to, to say it is we don't want to go above the line of scripture. You know, the line is what what God has revealed. We don't want to add to that and we don't want to subtract to that. So we don't want to say more than what God says and we don't want to say less than what God says. The other, the other principle is the reality that, you know, the Bible is clear on the most important issues, issues of salvation, um, the Christian life, so on and so forth. It, it's very clear. But there are other issues where the Bible might not even speak to, like the Bible doesn't teach us how to do heart surgery. Um, and what I mean by that is physical heart surgery, right? Or brain surgery. The Bible doesn't talk about how to put a man or a woman on the moon, so on and so forth. And so we have to understand that when the Bible speaks clearly, um, that's what God has for us. The hidden things belong to God. And so we have to be able to discern between doctrines. So for example, primary doctrines, secondary doctrines, tertiary doctrines. And um, uh, so I'm I'm getting to the, the, the fact that there's nuance, not just on this issue, but every issue. Jesus talked about the weightier matters of the law, right? That means that there were some things that were important, but not as weighty as some. Paul talks about to the Corinthians in First Corinthians 15 that he delivered to them what was of first importance. That means that there are things that are secondary importance for Paul. What was of first importance was the gospel, and then. You know, I, uh, in the talk, I think I referred to Robert Benning, and uh, I think it's good good and bad ways to talk about politics. And uh, he talked about straight line issues and jagged line issues. And the idea is that there are certain issues in scripture that we can draw a straight line to application. You know, so, for example, you know, from Genesis 9, 6, you know, uh, if you take a human life, you forfeit your life because we're created in the image of God. And you can draw a straight line from that to murder. But there are other issues that we have to go from one scripture to another scripture, to another scripture, to another scripture, to to come up with a holistic response. So for example, um, the way that I think we should think about immigration is a way that we should think about any issue. So first of all, let's think about immigration what are some of the scripture passages that should be informing how we think about it and i propose that that one important issue is genesis 1 26 28 that's the idea that we're all image of god and so that just informs how we deal with one another so irrespective of ethnicity of nationality of documentation whatever we are image of god and that means we treat one another with dignity human life is sacred so all human life is sacred and so that then begins to inform how we treat one another now as far as the church is concerned we have a pretty clear mission and that is to make disciples of all nations again it is without qualification we're to make disciples of all nations uh baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. So when we come across someone that's not a believer, we don't ask them for their papers. We don't ask them for documentation. We we go and we proclaim the gospel. So that should inform how we deal with people. Now, as we read scripture, we ha- we come to Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and that is we're to submit to governing authorities. And so... Um, Part of what that means is that we're to submit to the laws that uh, that humans have made and that government, governments have made. And that also informs how we deal with the immigration issue. Because as Christians, even though our citizenship is in heaven, we do not disregard human laws. You know, part of our testimony is that we are good citizens of this earthly kingdom, of which we're strangers and aliens. And so as we begin putting those things together, that's where you begin to see the nuance uh, and handling things on a case-by-case basis because there's no nuance about the fact that we treat everyone with dignity, every single person. There's no nuance as to the fact that no matter who it is or where they come from, we want them to know Christ. Now, when it comes to the laws of our nations, that's where things begin to get a little bit more muddled because i can speak to the united states we actually have conflicting laws and yeah, so you
0: about that in your in your talk that yeah you know you, you say you can't immigrate but then here's your tax number
1: that's exactly right so so in one sense our government says keep out you know uh you can't come in unless you go through the proper channels uh, but by the same token whoever comes in can get issued a tax ID number. And again, I'm not a lawyer and and I don't know immigration law perfectly, but I do know that our government will not refuse taxes of anyone that pays them.
0: Yeah. Please, we don't want your money. That's You're not right. supposed to be here.
1: <laughs> That's right. So I also understand that there's some people who will falsify in our government, you know, in our context, social security cards. So they're falsified social security cards and social security numbers, that's illegal. There are other cases where our government will actually issue a legal tax identification number to someone who is undocumented and receive their taxes, but then penalize them for being here. So so that's where the conflicts begin to arise. Um, You know, and and even, even misinformation, a lot of people don't know in the United States that a very high percentage of undocumented workers are actually paying taxes and are actually trying to live according to the law as best as they can. And so, uh, so, you, so you have a, a mixture of all these things. So that's, that's one layer, but then you have another layer and that's those who are actually coming into this country and are doing it the, the right way. And what, what sometimes people don't realize is how expensive that is, how long and drawn out that is. And um, it's such a difficult system that it frustrates people. And so the system itself is not a system that's conducive to help people come in, uh, in the through the appropriate channels uh, and, and, and through legal the, the appropriate legal channels as well. So that's where all the difficulties kind of come in And then, you know, and then add to that, the fact that you have someone that comes in not uh, documented, but then they begin having children here and then their children are legal citizens, they're not. And so what what should the response be of the government at that point? Do you separate the family? Do you send United States citizens to a country that, that they're not knowledgeable of? So again, I think we've created, um, when I say we, I mean, you know, as citizens and as governments, uh, we've created this, the, this difficult problem, but by the same token, the government has a responsibility to protect its citizens. And so that's where you get into border security, which is also a necessity. So that, you know, I've just shared all the complicated factors.
0: And then on top of all of that, you layer in the fact that an election can change how the government feels towards immigrants, Definitely. documented or undocumented. I mean, that's something yeah. we're going through in Canada right now. You know, you're the U.S. has got a whole slew of different immigration issues uh, that we don't think about in Canada. And yet uh, right now we have a government that's very pro-immigration because we're trying to fill jobs that aren't being met by typical Canadians or by right. uh, Canadians who have been here you know, for 20, 30 years or five years even. Um, and it's it's complicated. And yet we know that if an election happens, that policy on immigration could change very, very quickly. That's right. Um, yeah, it's it's complex. I think the the follow up question to that, which, you know, even in even in what you've said already now, I think is sort of been answered. has to do with this us versus them mentality. And there is there is this truth. I don't I don't think any Christian likes it is that. Uh, despite the fact that most Christians would acknowledge that we're made in the image of God, uh, there still exists this us versus them mentality. Uh, Sometimes that exposes itself in Christian circles rather than outside Christian circles. And that's a theological discussion, I think, and probably an argument that the church needs to have. Why do you think we as Christians, even though we know what Scripture says, as you said earlier, we have to go to the Bible first, we know what Scripture says about uh, the dignity of a human life, why is it? Do you think that the church even is running into this? That we can't move past this us versus them mentality?
1: Yeah. Again, I I think this is just a a human problem, in in general. It's rooted in sin and in the fall. You know, uh, Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous of of Abel. Abel offered sacrifice that was acceptable to God. So Cain killed his brother, and so. You know, we we see this kind of jealousy and envy and partiality and and treating you know some people a certain way. Again, this is a human sin problem. As Christians, we should be renewing our minds and thinking rightly about one another, even in speech. You know, James applies the idea of the image and likeness of God to how we speak to one another. You know, with with the same tongue, we bless one and we curse another, who is made in the likeness of God. That that should not be. So even in how we speak, you know, this has implications for how we speak about people, especially that are different than we are. And sometimes the discrimination uh, comes at a socioeconomic level. You know, it comes at a at a national level. Um, and um, uh, but but there's just this this sin that we have to constantly fight and think right about and, and renew our minds. But there are also real factors you know um, uh, there there are real factors and what I mean by that are security issues. I think citizens of a nation have a right to feel like their borders are secure. Um, you know that that's just a part of you know uh, in our house, we lock our doors, you know uh, we you know we we want to make sure that my family's safe in our home and so we take certain precautions, and I think as a nation, uh, I think citizens have a right to feel safe. Uh, you know, the context in Canada is different than in the United States. Like you said, you're looking for workers to come in, and that's that's all well and good. Um,
0: some some and, of us are looking for workers to come in, and other people are thinking, <laughs> why are they taking our jobs? That's, so I think, you know, that's I, right. and I don't want to sell it as if every Canadian thinks the same. I'm I'm looking more stare, like when I read in the news, they're saying, look at all these unfilled jobs, look at, you know, this, that. And they're not particularly glamorous jobs, right? We're, yeah. we're talking about personal support workers, we're That's talking right. about cleaners and, and jobs that, you know, a Canadian who's been here and has established themselves in a career, you know, what I would say a typical Canadian, whether, you know, regardless of ethnicity, someone who's kind of been here and landed, there are jobs that we see new immigrants filling, and then they tend to move out of those jobs if they're able. You know, because they were a doctor or a nurse back uh, in their country of origin, and now they've mm-hmm. finished their qualification pathway and all of these things. They move into that career, and then there's a hole again.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: example I often, my brother is a, my brother in law is a farmer, uh, and he has the same five guys from Mexico come every year. And he said, I would have hired Canadians if I could have, but nobody will take these jobs. And these guys from Mexico are completely dependable, well trained. I know, like he sends their kids birthday presents on their birthdays, right? Like it's family yeah. to them. Yeah, now. yeah. And it's not just about a job; it's about a relationship. You know, he's using Duolingo to learn Spanish so he can say <laughs> things to them in Spanish. Yeah. I love it. Right? Like that's yeah. a that's a interesting quirk of globalization, I guess, too. But they go yeah. home every year. We have it's called a temporary foreign worker, so they're right. in, they're out. You know all of that. So. Anyways, I just thought I should clear that up because no, I, no, I no, know to yeah, that's no, right. And and thing, think,
1: but but that kind of proves my point, and that is, um, I think part of the reason is is rooted in fear, right? We're all afraid of mm. something, right? And so some people are afraid of security, right? Like like our country is not going to be secure. People are going to come in and they're going to do harm. Um, people are afraid of. They're going to take my job, right? And so my our economy is going to be threatened, or they're going to change our culture. You know, our culture is going to be transformed. And so I think a lot of that is motivated by fear. Um, and but but there's also there's also a sense of of motivation by uh, uh, from justice, right? This is yeah. not wrong, you know. Uh, and and I think there's a there's a rightness to wanting laws to be obeyed in your country, right? So it is not wrong for you to expect their laws on the books, and they should be obeyed. Um, you know, so there's a sense of justice. Uh, so so it's a mixture. It, it's a mixture of, of of reasons why why we get into the us them mentality. My concern is when this kind of us them mentality creeps into the church. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we live in a world, unfortunately, where we get a lot of our information from social media and from, uh, from the internet and other places. And so I think the way some of those, uh, vehicles and mediums, uh, gain followers and make money is by instilling fear in people. And, um and they deal in stereotypes uh, rather than dealing with reality. And so um, we don't want to stereotype people. We, you know, there's a difference between a generalization, you know, like I'm I'm Puerto Rican, people from Puerto Rico speak Spanish. Okay, that's a generalization. That's generally true of of Puerto Ricans, you know, that live in Puerto Rico. But then a stereotype would be, Puerto Ricans will come in your neighborhood and uh, and they'll steal your property, right? And so we we want to deal with, in truths in in reality, and we want to treat each individual with human dignity, and um, uh, we want to learn about them. We want to share the gospel with them. We want to know how we can help them. And and really, one of the things that we can do as citizens, and some churches may wish to do this as ministry is how can we help people obey the law? Um, interestingly, you know, that's one of the ways that we operate, even, even as we take in members, you know, when we learn that there's someone in our church that is undocumented, we wanna, first of all, know who they are, learn their circumstances, deal with that on a case-by-case basis, and then what we wanna do is we wanna shepherd them to obey the law and, uh, it, it, and sometimes that costs like financially you know um uh and you know and and the question that we ask as a believer we want to obey the law so what does repentance look like in this situation and so to 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 us we think that's good shepherding you know so for example we have uh a family that is applying for refugee status, We want to help them walk through the system and we want to know how we can pray for them, how we can encourage them. You know, we're not going to we can't afford to pay for every person that comes through to get them an immigration attorney, so on and so forth. But what we want to do is we want to walk with them and shepherd them to point them to the right resources and to walk with them along the line to help them align with the laws of of our country so that they could be free to live the life that they came here to live, and so uh, we've done that a number of times um, with uh, even with two different staff persons and uh, and and some members right now, where where we've said, "Look, here's here's what we want to do. We want to help you in this, and um, how can we help you apply for the appropriate visas and the appropriate permissions so that you can work legally, you know, in this state, so on and so forth." And so I think. You know, what we need to understand is the majority of people that are coming, they're fleeing uh, for reasons that we ourselves would flee if we were in that same situation. Mm -hmm. Every every father wants to provide for his family and wants to protect his family and wants his family to live in a safe environment. And um, the majority of people in the world want that kind of safety you know, the, the majority of these people are hard workers who are coming to work. They live here, uh, they work hard here to sustain their life, but they're working really hard to be sending a lot of that money back home to their family. And so uh, we wanna try to think through how can we encourage people to um, to be faithful to their promises, to their family, to be faithful to um, to the Lord, to uh, be obedient to the government. And again, that's where all these things get really complicated.
0: Is there a danger? And I, I think I have an answer to this, but I'm curious in your thoughts. Is there a danger that we're blurring a line between what we would consider a national and a state issue and say a church issue? And I'm going to own what I think up front, whether I'm right or wrong. I would love to hear your thoughts. Is that or and maybe I'll use this language of politics. Um, you know, I, I used to say, well, I'm not sure if the Christians should be involved in politics. And a, a pastor once corrected me and one thing, he said, Jesus was incredibly political. If you look at what Jesus did in first century Israel, he was stepping on the toes of the Pharisees sometimes, not, not in a way that broke any of the law, because Jesus is perfect, but in a way that challenged the Pharisees to reconsider what the law was according to the scripture. And what they had imposed on the law above and beyond that. And so his his kind of catchphrase that I loved was Ever, like, Jesus was political. And so, you know, even as I ask this question, I know that there are very blurry areas. And you've highlighted a couple of ways that even your church has been involved in that, which I think is fantastic. Immigration and some topics like that are very much seen as state or national issues. Um, I don't say state in the um, United States sense, but in the government Correct. sense. Yeah, yeah and there are other issues like tithing or communion that are you know church issues right and the government really even as i say this i laugh because the government had some strong feelings about communion during covid right and the way like you know a lot of churches now that have moved to those little cups where there's a plastic thing and you rip that off and eat the wafer, then you rip off the second plastic layer and you drink the grape juice or whatever um you know those lines, and and especially in the United States, but also in Canada, there's this separation of church and state, which was created, I think, to prevent both the state from doing things and also the church. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on the blurring of those lines and whether there is an appropriate blur uh and this is maybe going beyond immigration i realize that sure sure immigration what does that look like in
1: your mind yeah well first of all let me make a book recommendation uh jonathan lehman has just come out with a book on authority where he talks about the different spheres of authority and how this works and i do think it's a really helpful conversation to have again i can't speak for the canadian context but in the united states you know um there are some churches that will have a politician who will come on a sunday morning and address the congregation um and um uh you know the 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 history of the separation of church and state uh, has a long history here in the united states dating back you know even to to the uh those who came here early on and you know Roger Williams in in providence rhode island and so on and so forth um uh, because you know when when the puritans came over um you know part of the inheritance of the reformation is a joining together of the church and the state right and so uh as baptists you know that's one of the um it's one of the convictions that we have this the separation of church and state and and the idea is that the church has no authority to dictate how we do church as a church. You know, the the, the state cannot dictate our doctrine. The state cannot dictate, you know, uh, when we meet, how we meet, how long we meet, those kinds of things. Because the state has been given the sword, Romans 13, 1 first, first Peter 2. The state has been given the the sword. There's Their sphere is that public sphere, you know, to punish evil and to promote the good. And it's a very limited. All authority is limited, right? So the parents have been given the rod, but uh, and even even the husband-wife relationship. The husband is ahead of the wife, and the wife is to to come under the leadership of her husband. So women are not to be not to submit themselves to men in general. You know, it's it's only within the home, right? And so, again, we have to think about these different spheres. Uh, By the same token, as Christians, we do live in a state, right? We do live in a government. Um, It's always been the case. That's why Paul wrote Romans 13. Because even in a tyrannical state under an emperor, Paul tells the Romans to submit to governing authorities because they are the Lord's servant. That, that word servant is from when we get our English word deacon, you know, so so the government is God's deacon to do what God has assigned and only that. And in the church that we have the keys. And so we have the authority to, to affirm and remove members, you know, so on and so forth. The church can't, I mean, the state can't tell us who to take in as members and who not to. And so um, so in our Baptist tradition is, is, You know, there's not a mixture of church and state. However, because we are also citizens of an earthly state, an earthly kingdom, um, part of our discipleship, and again, this is part of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Part of our discipleship is, is trying to understand how do we love our neighbor? You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. How do we love our neighbor? You know, um, and this is where I actually think the principles of exile come into play. Um, you know, we have First Peter 2, 9, where it's the language of Israel at Sinai in Exodus 19. But then you have the language of the second Exodus. And so we we can learn a lot as to how to relate in our world by studying how Israel was told to live in exile. And so, you know, Jeremiah wrote a letter said, Mary, you know, have children, seek the welfare of the city. Daniel was in the political, uh, you know, uh, was a political official, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Um, uh, Joseph was the second in command over all of Egypt. And so I do think it's appropriate for Christians, as Christians, to participate in government, to vote. If they live in governments where they have that freedom, they should take advantage of that. They should be informed. And I do think, you know, part of what we have to do is to promote in seeking the welfare of the city of where we live. Part of what we have to do is is we have to persuade people that there are better laws. We have to persuade people that there are better ways of governing. We have to persuade people that um, that laws that promote human flourishing are better than laws that uh, work against human flourishing. Uh, we have to persuade people that for humanity to flourish, uh, God's design is better. One man and one woman in a covenant relationship of marriage for life, um, that's God's design. Now, we live in a culture that sees things differently. But um, I think as Christians, we have, we have the ability to speak in a prophetic way to our culture. We have the ability to vote, to try to change uh, laws, try to change governing officials. But here's what I would say, we cannot put our hope in those things. And this is where I think, you know, uh, things have become blurred, this idea where, where evangelicals, and again, I, I'm speaking of the United States context, because I don't know anything about the Canadian context, where where so much money, time, and energy is invested, even by churches, to, to assume that we can change the world through political means, and through human means, um, that's not our mission. Our mission is to live in this world that hates us. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that It hated me before I hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's a consistent testimony of the New Testament. We're people that don't fit in this world. We're strangers, we're exiles, we're aliens. But we have to live in such a way that we give a testimony of what it's like to be God's people on this earth and to point to him and his grace and his goodness and his love to care for our neighbor and to be the best citizens that we can be
0: hmm. yeah uh, our podcast listeners will have heard last week's uh, podcast episode was about living in a post-christian world post-christian canada specifically uh, and the language of exile came up a lot uh, so it's it's interesting to me and the more the more we move away from christendom uh, it, it is something we're going to have to wrestle with and come to terms with. Um, and I, you know, there are places in the world that live that right now. We have not lived that in the West, and yet we're coming to that point where it is no longer culturally beneficial to be identified as a Christian. And therefore we get to you know, the rise of the knots or the people who say, I don't have any affiliation with any faith. Uh, it is becoming particularly in one sense difficult, but in also, in one sense, it's very clarifying because you're standing next to brothers and sisters who are saying, this isn't cultural for me. This is a choice to live my faith That's right. authentically.
1: That's right. It, it, it is very clarifying. And not only that, when you read the New Testament, this is when the church most flourished.
0: Hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the second thing I thought about as we wrap up here, I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, part of my story is that I wasn't really walking with the Lord in, in university when I was studying and uh, i don't know how i ended up with it but i ended up with these magnets on my fridge in my dorm or you know my my off-campus housing or whatever and one of the magnets that ended up with me for a long time said you can't legislate morality and i'm pretty sure it was a protest magnet it had nothing to do (laughs) with christian faith but it's true we can't legislate morality we cannot force any person who wants to think on an issue like immigration or abortion or um, tax law or anything like that we can't legislate people's hearts we have That's to win right. their hearts for christ in a totally different manner That's uh, right. and that is probably a completely different podcast episode me, but, uh, listen juan thank you so much for taking the time uh not once but twice uh hopefully two <laughs> times is the charm and uh That's
1: right.
0: people hear a recording that says this is our third time trying this they'll know that this one didn't take it all but uh yeah i just so appreciate your candor your wisdom and yeah, just your willingness to, to stand up and say things that I believe are very deeply important for our, our Christian culture to hear today.
1: Yeah, it, it's my pleasure. And the only, the only thing that I would add is just just that we, we, have to, we have to humble ourselves, we have to be patient with one another, and we have to hear each other out. Even if we don't disagree with the positions that we're hearing, as Christians, we, we at least have to honor one another to hear one another out. And we don't we don't have to agree on 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 these secondary and tertiary matters. And that doesn't mean they're not important, but but it does mean we can disagree and still maintain fellowship and um and understand that there's some things that are just really, really hard. And um, but the Lord is good and he is faithful and he is at work.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, one. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Juan, for making time to make this podcast happen, not just once, but twice. Your passion for ministry and for the church is evident in everything you say, and we loved having you here at NBC. We look forward to when we get to see you again. Juan recommended a couple of resources in his episode, which we've linked in the show notes. You'll want to check those out. Next week, we have Paul Martin speaking about another interesting topic, disability and the church. I'm already excited for you all to hear about how his own personal experiences have shaped what and how he leads his congregation. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please do consider sharing it with a friend, subscribing on your favorite podcast app, or following along on NBC's social media pages. If you really want to show some love, leave us a rating and review. It's the best way to get new listeners tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio recording by the Summer 2023 AV Team. And the theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina Tabakal-Hodes. See you next week for another episode of Transforming Culture.
1: I need to know there is justice And you know it in a And that you building a city When we arrive say yeah. yeah.